You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Amen and amen. Thank you, Deacon Chief. Good evening, church. Oof, sounds great in person. All the voices in one greeting me hello. Fantastic. Uh, but glad to be here in the house of the Lord, and glad to be, uh, again, in here, here in person. We, we no longer have a live stream, so uh, this is our congregation, and there's probably going to be more joining us in the next few weeks or so. Uh, but I'm excited that we are finally here in the house of the Lord together and able to worship. There's also going to be communion at the end of the service, so get ready for that. I hope you're excited for that. We've been, uh, we haven't had communion in a while at the Lord's table, and so uh, we'll be par- uh, participating in that. Um, along with that, today we're, we're, as we mentioned last week, we are putting on hold our Gospel of John series to pick up a little a mini-series, a vision-casting series called World View. World View. In this series, uh, along with it being a, a reminder of our church's mission to reach, revolve, and reflect uh, in the world and God's love, uh, it is, it's going to be a series where we take a look at uh, the difference between what we preach as a church and what we do as a church uh, in relation to what the world does and what the, how the world views certain topics. And uh, it's going to be a, a, a three-part series, and uh, it should be a good one. But for tonight, we will be jumping into two passages. So if you have your Bible, please stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, going Old Testament tonight. Two passages for this evening. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, and then put your finger on Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. I like the sound of everyone's Bibles flipping. It's great. It's better than, you know, if it's a phone or something. So the first passage we're reading from is Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, and then Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Genesis chapter 11 says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 to 47 says this. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O holy God, we declare your majesty this evening. God, just as we sang these songs of praise, O Lord, Lord Jesus, we declare you king. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign over all and that, God, even in this time that we have, that you have purposed it to be a time of refreshing, a time of conviction, a time of life change. And we ask for that, O God. I pray that you would humble our hearts, that we might hear from your spirit and receive whatever it is that you have in store for us. And I pray, O oh God, for the hardened heart that you softened it this evening, that it would be good soil for your gospel to be planted in. I pray for the soul that has not placed their faith in you, that tonight would be the night of salvation, O oh Lord. We, God, we, we ask for life change. God, we, we humble ourselves before your feet. I ask that you use me as your instrument of peace, I pray. Guard me, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Amen and amen. Before you sit down, please tell someone beside you, across from you, turn around, I don't know, uh, the title of my sermon, The Gospel of Socialism. The Gospel of Socialism. And you may be seated. We're in it. Tonight going to be a hot topic. Not the store, but, but uh, let me begin by tonight's. Let me begin tonight's sermon by by saying that, um, firstly, I have to admit that I do not have a degree in political science or claim to be an expert on the economy. And and so when I speak on some of these secular ideologies, I ask that you would give me grace, as it will be coming not from an expert, but someone who just who is. Uh, fairly fond of history and who uh, loves the word of God. So despite not knowing all the intricate details of politics or, or socioeconomic ideologies, the, the backdrop or the framework by which we will critique or analyze or even compare these human philosophies is going to be by the word of God. Sola Scriptura dictates that Scripture alone is the highest authority, infallible authority, when it comes to matters of faith and practice. And because these ideologies that we'll be speaking of tonight ultimately touches on matters of identity and man's purpose and man's destiny, it falls under the Bible's jurisdiction of faith and practice. The secular world may say, oh, but this is government and politics and economics. The church has no say on these matters. Well, as we'll see tonight, socialism goes beyond simple governance of a nation and is deeply rooted in spiritual matters, uh, man's desire for autonomy. I also want to remind you that um, as your pastor... I do not want to persuade you to vote a certain way or have you support specific political parties. That's not my job or intention. 
My job is to teach you from the Bible God's will and expectations with the hopes that you would make a biblically informed decision when it comes to those things. So understand that what I preach on tonight is not meant to sway you to any side of the political spectrum, but simply inform you what the Bible has to say on these matters. Everyone okay with that? Amen. So as we discuss our mission as a church to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe the biggest hurdle in the form of opposing worldviews that we will encounter is the false gospel of socialism. Just to be clear, socialism is a political and economic theory of societal structure which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned and regulated by the community as a whole, which ultimately means the state. Simply put, The people create wealth and resources. The government takes the wealth and resources to be redistributed to the people in forms of health care and welfare and other community benefits. At its core, regardless of what form of socialism you look at, democratic socialism, Marxism, the National Socialism Party, also known as the Nazis, at its core, socialism propagates a gospel of human works to determine human flourishing and destiny. In its original conception, socialism was known as utopian socialism, a philosophy that sought to eliminate all class distinctions and inequality in order to create a utopia, a humanist paradise in this world built by human hands. And that's ultimately at the heart of socialism in all its forms today. Every socialist government, regardless of the degree they profess to be socialists, still strive for this. They desire to build a a nation, a paradise, by means of human effort and state-run programs. And maybe you're hearing all this, and maybe you're thinking, but socialism is a good thing, isn't it? It provides free health care and welfare to the unemployed. It, it promotes equality among class and race. It redistributes the wealth of the rich to the poor. Socialism is a great thing, no? And at first glance, it may seem so. I'm not saying that, that it's not a good thing that, that people have access to affordable or free health care. It's a great thing, in fact. It's good to take care of of the unemployed and and those impoverished. It's good to strive for the flourishing of all people, regardless of class or race. But the problem with socialism, at its premise and at its practice, and, and even at its ultimate product, is that it cuts God out of the picture and makes the collective humanity God. See, socialism requires that the state or the government becomes God the highest authority in which humanity looks to for help and health. So naturally, socialists need to remove God out of the picture and anything that promotes the following or submission to God. We can see this and learn this all throughout history whenever socialism arises or or flourishes or secularism increases. The sacred is often destroyed. Karl Marx, the author of Marxism and ultimately communism, built his philosophy around the removal of religion and faith from the populace in order to advance the ideologies of socialism. 
Vladimir Lenin, a follower of Marx, the founder of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, he said, we must combat religion. This is the ABC of all materialism and Marxism. And as a result, 70,000 churches were destroyed and thousands of priests were killed when his party came into power. The regime after him created the LMG, the League of Militant Godless, to completely eradicate Christianity from Russia. It's why in 1942, Hitler vowed to root out and destroy the influence of the Christian churches in Germany, claiming that it was the evil that was gnawing at the people's vitals. Why is this? Why do socialists adamantly oppose the Christian faith and the belief in God? Because again, in order for socialism to work, God and his church needs to be taken out of the picture and man and his government must take his place. Now you might be thinking, but Pastor Ian, how is this relevant? It's not like we live in communist China or the USSR. You have to understand that over the years, Canada, along with other Western countries, have become more and more of socialist countries. It may not be to the extent of violence as the USSR or, the, or Nazi Germany was, but the socialist, the socialist ideology is interwoven in how our government and in how our country functions. On the positive side, we have free health care and, and provision for the unemployed and the impoverished and, and public uh, programs and education. That's great stuff, and everyone should have access to those things. But on the flip side, as we saw in this pandemic, the government has so much overreach that it extends into everyone's personal lives and even supersedes our basic human rights. Businesses and churches were made to close down. Everyone has been mandated to wear a mask. And under threat of facing fines and arrests, we were told to stay at home for a while. And though they don't explicitly force people to take the vaccine, they sure pressure everyone to do so because unless a certain amount of people take the vaccine or have been vaccinated, we can't reopen society. We literally cannot hold church service unless the government allows us to. They do the same in communist China. And it goes beyond politics to what they're teaching in schools and broadcasting on social media. Critical race theory simply switches social classes with race. The BLM co-founder literally went on the record and said, we are trained Marxists. Cancel culture and tearing down statues and the redefinition of words is literally all taken out from the communist manifesto where in order to change society, you need to erase or change history. You hear talks about equality. And you think it's for equal opportunity, when in reality, what people actually want is equity, equal outcome. Totally different premise, and totally a socialist ideology. Even when it comes to gender identity, understand that it stems from a materialist mindset that believes that because we are simply being physical beings without spirits or souls, we can therefore alter or decide our gender, our purpose, and our destiny. Again, socialism seeks to make man the ultimate dictator of purpose, identity, and destiny. 
And all of it is propagated under the guise of caring for the collective and justice and unity and equality for all. And all for the sake of establishing this utopic society governed by man. God, again, is left out of the picture. Now, that's exactly what happens in our first passage tonight at the Tower of Babel. Look at Genesis 11.4 again. Genesis 11.4 says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You have humanity coming together to build itself a kingdom, to make a name for themselves in order that humanity would survive and not be scattered. This sounds fantastic, right? People putting aside their differences, coming together to build something, to accomplish something. God even says in verse 6 of that passage, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God recognizes the potential of what humans can do when they set aside their differences and come together. And what's the result? God punishes them. And the very thing that they didn't want happened, happens. It says that, uh, that in verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God invents French class and disperses the people. Why? Because as good as their intentions may have been, ultimately their human endeavor was meant to cut God out of the picture and establish a kingdom for man. Now you have to think, well, how is this concept of socialism and, uh, any different from what we just read in Acts chapter 2, our second passage this evening? Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had in need. A socialist would say, that's exactly what we're trying to do. What's wrong? We want wealth to be equally redistributed and ensure that every person has their needs met. So what's the difference between these two stories? And what's, what distinguishes between the socialist ideology and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mandate of the church? Well, that's our goal for tonight, to examine the difference between the message that socialism propagates and what the gospel of Jesus Christ promises. I want us to see the difference and also see what we as believers, who, whose, whose mission it is to go and reach the lost, the unbelievers of the world, uh, what we need to deal with, the, the ideologies that we'll have to address. My desire is that for those of us who, who, even, who have even bought into this world philosophy of socialism, and trust me, it's snuck into churches all around, that we would truly see the difference between the, 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 the man-made ideology and what God has created and enabled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's jump into this tonight's sermon. Everyone say jump. So what's the difference between the gospel of socialism and the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's the difference between the story of the Tower of Babel and, and the early church and what they were doing? Well, first and foremost, man's kingdom versus God's kingdom. Man's kingdom versus God's kingdom. Notice what the people say back in Genesis. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Their goal was to build for themselves a kingdom, a kingdom made by human hands with a tower that stretches high into the heavens. 
And as mentioned, this is what socialism ultimately wants to do as well. A human utopia built on man's work and wealth. What this also entails is that the kingdom is then governed by man's laws and ultimately by man himself. Again, this is why God needs to be removed in the socialist blueprint so that man then becomes the highest authority. There is a direct connection between socialism and atheism. Just take a look at any communist country. At its core, socialism seeks to establish man's kingdom, autonomous from God. On the other hand, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to usher in God's kingdom, Look at, look, at, uh, look at the Acts passage, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, they attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. What happened in Acts is a glimpse of the kingdom of God to come. What we as believers are meant to emulate here, even as the church, it it is a sneak peek into the age to come when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in the Beatitudes. Check out Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is not promising health and wealth and the kingdom here in this life to his disciples. In fact, he's promising the opposite. He's promising hardship and hunger and struggle and persecution on his account. But all for the sake of the kingdom to come. All for the sake for the, of the kingdom of God. But look what Jesus continues to say after that. The judgment on those who have kingdoms now, who pursue riches now. It says in verse 24 of that passage, But woe to you who are rich For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus dishes out four woes to those who would seek to establish their own kingdom here in this world. A woe was a prophetic calamity. It was meant to warn of a great distress or a great disaster to come if things did not change. And this is the pattern we see in the Gospels. Jesus always has something negative to say when it comes to those who value worldly riches or or rather those who take pride in worldly kingdoms. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to be or to enter into the kingdom of God. He tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man where the rich man is the one who ends up in a place of torment. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The difference between socialism and the gospel is that socialism seeks to build man's kingdom. The gospel seeks to reveal God's kingdom. 
This is why Jesus also always said that the kingdom of God is here. It's in the midst of you, he says. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual one, which will later become physical one, one that will last forever. Listen, you know what happens to all of man's governments at the end of the day? What happens to the conservatives, to the liberals, to the to the what's the other ones, Americans, Republicans, Democrats? What happens to communist China? What happens to the British monarchy at the end of the day? Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Look at this. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and break them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Every power, every world government, every kingdom of man will yield its authority back to Christ, back to the kingdom of God in the end of the day. And they'll be destroyed. So which kingdom do you want to be a part of, or which kingdom should you invest your time in? Man's kingdom, a kingdom that is finite and temporal, or God's kingdom, which will never end and will stand forever. So where socialism seeks the wealth and prosperity of man, a utopia in this life, the gospel seeks to usher in that kingdom of God. Secondly, what's the difference between socialism and the gospel? Number two, man's glory versus God's glory. Man's glory versus God's glory. Back to our passage in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. It says in the middle of that, Let us make a name for ourselves, the people say. Why did they want to build a tower in the first place? Why do, why do people build skyscrapers today and towers today and then put their company's logo up on, uh, on the top of it? It's to show their accomplishment, what, they're, uh, what they've achieved, what they can achieve. The people in Genesis even says, come, let us build ourselves a city and, uh, and a tower with its top in the heavens. They wanted to equate the, and compare their accomplishment with the kingdom of heaven. You know what that shows? It shows pride. Whenever an individual wants to compare their accomplishment, their prowess, their success, they'll often compare themselves to the things of God. Lucifer aspired to it. Adam and Eve were tempted to it. You will be like God. Even John Lennon of the Beatles, right? They, he, he said that, he, that the Beatles was more popular than Jesus. <laughs> All of it stems from pride. And, that, and that's at the heart of socialism, pride. A desire to establish a kingdom, a utopia without the help of God. All by the efforts of, of, of man and, and the governments of man. You know, what I always find amusing and, and really just ridiculous is that even though socialism has already been tried by governments and countries all over the world throughout history and has failed each time and has proven its flaws, men and governments today still seek to strive for it and try to make it work. Countries are still attempting to make socialism work, to achieve this utopia, even though it's failed every time. Just pick up a history book, right? 
And socialists will, will argue, well, well, those countries were doing it wrong, and, and we're going to be different, and, and we're going to do it this way. I'm sure Hitler thought the same. But you know what keeps people doing the same thing over and over again, even though history dictates that it doesn't work? Pride. It's a desire to seek one's glory by making something work, even if it doesn't work. That's where socialism is rooted in, in the pride of life. It's why the ultimate end of all socialist governments is a dictatorship. Because one individual will have more pride than others, and, and, and it, it is by their will and their efforts that the socialist government will succeed. Compare that to the gospel and the early church back in Acts chapter 2. Verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. The gospel is meant to bring glory to God. What the early church is doing in Acts was meant to bring praises to God. They weren't sharing their things so that they could pat themselves on the back. No, it was all for God. And that's another big difference between socialism and the gospel. Socialism acquires wealth through coercion, by force, taxes, and confiscation. The the, the goal is to to, to redistribute the wealth to meet people's needs, but they need to take that wealth first. The church gives out of a generous heart, out of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, out of a gratitude for the blessing that God has bestowed on us, not by coercion. Totally different. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul brings it back to God, our giving. It's because we want to please God and, and, and love God that, by, by giving and that we, we care for the, and, and we care for the needs of our brothers and sisters. That brings glory to God. And Christians give, it brings glory to God. All of it goes back to the idea that the gospel is meant to bring praise and honor and glory to God. The only one worthy of praise and honor and glory. The end of socialism is man's glory. The end of the gospel is God's glory. Finally, and this is probably the biggest difference between socialism and the gospel and I'm pretty sure there's, this is a longer conversation, and if you want to have that conversation, please talk to Elder Joel. Um, <laughs> talk to any of the elders. We would love to have these conversations, but this is a, definitely a longer discussion. But uh, probably the biggest difference between socialism and the gospel, lastly, man's survival versus God's sovereignty. Man's survival versus God's sovereignty. What was the reason for humanity coming together to establish a kingdom, to build a tower, to make a name for themselves? Genesis 11, verse 4, again. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The reason they came together and the reason why socialism exists is for survival. Take away the economics and the policies and at the root of socialism and all human endeavor and the pride of life, 
is a desire to be saved. Whether it's acquiring resources or wanting to break, break free from oppression or simply having control, the inherent human desire that is being addressed with socialism is a desire for survival or to be saved. People are willing to give up their rights and freedoms just to acquire it. Remember, the, the Nazi party didn't gain their position in government by force. They were voted in. The desire for utopia, a paradise for humanity, comes from the recognition that the world is fallen, it's corrupt, it's unfair, unjust, filled with sufferings. And that's why they need a government to save them. That's why they need something to save them. Salvation is in the hands of the sovereign God. That's the message that we are trying to preach. That's the message that we are trying to to reach the loss with. A hope that is sure. A kingdom that is going to last forever. Not a temporal fix. Not an appeasement of people's sentiments. A gospel that is true. And a hope that is sure in the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation is in the hands of the sovereign God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close. Socialism seeks to build man's kingdom in order to share resources and wealth to survive. God's sovereignty assures us that when we seek out his kingdom first... All those other things come secondary. Matthew chapter 6 verse 31 says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Socialism seeks to eliminate class and race and distinction, to have justice and equality for all. The gospel of Jesus Christ accomplishes that already. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Socialism seeks salvation and freedom from suffering. Only Jesus can truly offer a world without suffering. In fact, he promises it. Listen to the hope that we have, church. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 4, it says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God wipe away every tear from their eyes 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things between socialism and the gospel. Socialism strives to provide for man's need of survival. The gospel declares that God has already provided the means for salvation. We just sang about it, right? We, we serve a king. We, we, we sing praises to a savior who traded his throne for a cross. What government does that? What politician Jesus. Memory, O Lord, 
sin, any hidden sin that we may have done, thought, any offense, oh Lord, that we have forgotten. I pray that you would convict our hearts. I pray, oh God, that you would cleanse your people this evening. Not take this table or participate in this table in an unworthy manner. That we would partake of it with joy in our hearts, recalling, oh Lord, what you have done on our behalf. Lord God, we praise you. We glorify you for giving us again this opportunity to once again come together and partake of the Lord's table as brothers and sisters. with us during this time. In Jesus' name. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. Jesus, we remember, God, the body that was bruised, the body that was whipped and scourged, the body that was pierced for our transgressions. We thank you for the body, oh God, that has taken our chastisement that we might have peace, that we might have healing.
us the, the grace that the cross has afforded us. And so God, as we have come together, I pray that we would remember once again the joy of our salvation. It is only found in our King, Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would convict our hearts if we have placed our hope and trust in man and in man's authority and man's governance. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would switch our hearts towards you once again. That our hope for tomorrow would be in you once again. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would be magnified in the hearts of your people this evening. And as we sing songs of praise, that they would be a sweet offering to you. listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.